series, if you're just joining us, um, we, we've started a series on what we're calling the Word and Spirit, specifically getting into Scripture and healing. I'm, I'm under the conviction that to have a significant move of God, you have to have at least a couple foundational elements at work. Every move of God that I've, I've observed in, in, in church history, and especially those that have been prevalent in Southern California, if you don't know that Southern California has birthed as many or maybe all of the significant movements of the Western church um, in the last, at least in the last hundred plus years, it's been here. And I, I think there's reasons for that. Um, I think there's a significance in that and what this part of the, the, the nation represents. But with that, the Word of God is always a foundation if there is long-term fruit. And the Scriptures today, I, I am, I'm, I'm sensing, I'm observing, I'm, I'm reading in culture, and, and especially among Christians, it's like, it's, it's not, we can say it's, oh, it's under attack. Or, or we can observe the fact that there are just questions of doubt that are seeping in to people that have traditionally been part of church. And one of the ways that happens, I don't know if you've found this, but have you ever found, have you ever, like maybe in the last couple years, I don't know, in the midst of COVID, found like a Christian ministry or a Christian leader who just, who you like grew up adoring and now all of a sudden they said something and it's like, I can't stand that person anymore? I mean, you wouldn't tell us that because that's not Christian, but like maybe you've had that thought in the back of your mind, like I'm never listening to a thing that person ever puts out on the hemisphere ever again because they're obviously a heretical bigot in some way, shape, and form because they offended me on this area. Or maybe they're just flat out obnoxious. I had no idea they were such a big jerk and they're so obnoxious or whatever it is. And, and, and I, I'll, be, I'll be honest, I have really wrestled with people that have been amazing strengths and put amazing truth into my life. And because of something, especially the last couple years, I'm struggling. I'm struggling with them. Um, however, when I really just kind of get out of my, my stuff, when I get out of my stuff, uh, I, I realize that when I come back to things, I, I've been used to Christians missing a lot about this kingdom message of Jesus, like my whole life. I mean, my, like my entire life, I remember like going like, yeah, like those guys, yeah, we're, we're all Christians, we're all part of the same family, but, but those people that stand down at Venice Beach and hold up big black signs and tell everyone they're going to hell, like we've kind of always been used to them being like, ah, I mean, we would never do that, and I would love to take them in a back room and condemn them and tell them why. Uh, <laughs> And, and, and yet, at the same time, they probably, a lot of them, probably have what they, they believe is a love relationship with Jesus. Um, they have misconstrued something about the Scriptures in their presentation, for sure. And, but now things are much more nuanced than that. We can't just put everyone with um, the good guys and the bad guys down at Venice Beach with the black signs. I grew up in the Midwest, and there weren't enough people passing by. So, so, the, so a lot of the farmers would just put the big black signs up on their farmland. And uh, you guys know what I'm talking about? Midwesterners? Yeah? Yeah? Like, hell is hot? That was my favorite one on the way to college. And it's always a black sign. It's always a black sign with white letters. Hell is hot. That was just the first message. And then, like, another couple miles down the road, he continued that message. And uh, there were some other choice, choice encouraging, just, like, super super fun elements of the good news of the gospel just uh, plastered along your way to college, for me anyway. Uh, the, the point is, is that we should be used to, at this point, 
realizing that even those people, and by the way, every single one of those people that give messages like that, they're always what I call Bible bangers. Like, they, they blame the Word of God for everything, right? And, and they believe in the Word of God. And, uh, and, but here's the thing is, just because someone believes in the Word of God uh, doesn't, doesn't mean that it has, had is connected with their heart. And what I'm also observing in the broader uh, culture and in the broader church culture, the truth of, of, of the authority of God's Word is, is kind of like subtly being questioned more and more and more because we can look out at those who claim to love God's Word and then all of a sudden we're like, if they believe that, maybe there's some issues with, with the Scripture. Or there's all these, these questions. I mean, so many people, if you, if you look around um, and you go on, I don't know, it, it, college campuses nowadays, if you go to any place of, of, of work, people have watched a YouTube video or 500 about any belief system, and there's plenty of content out there for you to get a soundbite about faith, spirituality, especially uh, Scripture. And there's typically three things they attack about Scripture. Uh, they'll attack something about uh, the history of it. They'll attack something about the culture. Um, and, they, and they also attack something about, like, the science of it, Right. And so most of us are familiar with, like, the scientific dynamics that people bring up about the Bible, about, like, how science and, and Scripture can't coalesce, and, and that actually is not true at all. Um, I'm not going to talk about that and focus on that today, but, but we've talked about that in, I think, church cultures for a long time. At the same time, historically, things like the eyewitness accounts and things of that nature, is it a valid historical document? We've also been talking about that for a long time. But what I'm realizing is the cultural issues are coming to the surface, and I don't think we're as prepared for these questions and these dynamics as we once were. And I think there are seeds of doubt that are creeping in. And I want to do one thing today. I want to strengthen us. I want to strengthen us in our resolve. I want us to be able to, in some ways, kind of brush off the noise of the church itself and the people within our team that love Jesus that are, whether they're obnoxious or just flat out wrong on certain things, for us to be able to say, you know what, maybe this is an invitation for us to bring this foundation of our faith to the surface and let it shine. Let, it, let, it, let my life actually be the validity that the people that are finding reasons to not make it a truth and authority of their lives. May my life maybe play some kind of instrument for them to see a different kind of tune that brings them into the person of Jesus. So authority, though, is a trigger because no one likes authority. I mean, um, and, and that doesn't matter what your dynamic. If you, if you live in America, authority is a trigger word. And, and, and so what I want to bring up is that if we look at authority more from the view of a, of a loving father and a parent, if you don't have a parent, if you grow up as, a, as an orphan or you grow up with parents that don't parent to the fullest degree of their potential, it leaves some kind of void, right? I, mean, I don't know how many people I've talked to where, where they, they talk about, like, I, I had parents that kind of let me do whatever I wanted. And what is, what's usually the byproduct of that? I'm not here to beat up on parents because there can be a million different reasons for that. But even a parent that's like loves their kids but just kind of lets the kids do whatever they want, what's the, what's the result of that typically? The kid does whatever they want. But what they, what they, what they end up seeking, they don't just want their parents' approval. What they missed out on is, I, I, want, I, want my, I want my mom and dad to show me how to do life. 
I just wanted to live with them, and I wanted to, I wanted to screw up and, and make mistakes and learn, and them to coach me and walk me through it and love me and pick me up and show me the way and direct me, not just to tell me everything what to do and become a robot, but to guide me, to be with me, to walk with me. You know, and you know what the, the final promise of Jesus was in the Great Commission? Of course, we know it. Matthew 28 is, is, is he, he tells them to, to, to go and make disciples of all nations. But the very last thing he says, I'll be with you always. You'll never walk alone. The promise of your father as I'm stepping away. In, in one of the other gospels, they, the, the disciples freak out when Jesus is saying that he's going to leave. And they go, well, just show us the father. And that'll be enough for us. Why? Because they ultimately felt the orphan spirit entered in at that moment. And they're like, oh my gosh, we're starting to get what this father God is like. And you're leaving. So how are our connection to him, how is that going to, what are we going to do? Show us the father. And he goes, everything I've been doing is showing you the father. Every last element of what I'm doing is, is showing you the father. But I want to connect something. I want to connect authority with an image of, of, our, of our heavenly parent. When Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, again, that's at the Great Commission. That's how he starts this thing about go make disciples. He starts with all authority. When he says that, what he's saying is that my entire work here on earth has been to reestablish authority and order. And it's good. That good created order that was from the very beginning in the entire story of, of the scriptures, from Genesis down through Revelation, he comes back and he reestablishes authority. And nobody that follows Jesus has any issue with that, that Jesus came and reestablished authority, right? But then all of a sudden, when we start talking about Scripture and authority, and to what degree does this, like, do these words on a page have and to be an authority in my life, you don't need to start with the concept of words on a page. You need to start with Jesus came for the sole purpose of reestablishing authority, to reestablish authority. The way of a good creator God and his creation to partner with him for the restoration of all things. And if that, if that sounds true, this is, this is the testimony of what's in the Holy Scripture. That's the anchor and the core of his entire ministry. And what he's inviting us into then when we look at Scripture as an authority, is does this validate the testimony of that good creator God and his son Jesus who showed us what he was like? And is this, is this how my parent is loving me into the fullness of what's available in the human experience? That's really what we're asking. And if not that, then we're in, we're in a bit of a predicament because then... What is the standard that we look to that's going to guide us? That's what's actually really scary. If, if you're having doubts about any element of faith, even about things of the scripture and so forth, and one thing I, I often notice about churches in general, amazing churches, our church, there's, there's often not a lot of space to make the, the questions about, like, what about this? What about that funky phrase that said that that's super offensive, but we don't talk about it, Right? And sometimes we gloss over it with actually good things. Like uh, one of the elements that I would like to encourage you in is when you find something like not just something that sits the wrong way, but something that's like deeply offensive and this seems to be anti what I know about who God is, it probably is. 
It probably is. And, and, and the way that's interpreted and what that means in the context of how it was written probably means something else. And maybe you should do a bit of digging. And I would encourage you to do that. And not just kind of like as a robot say, hmm, women, put this on your head, Paul said. Like that, that would be super awkward. Most of us know those kinds of things. But we, we don't go beyond that for all the other elements. And we're not ready to even be present with those that are having and willing to make those conversations. Now, at the same time, I realize that like, um, there's not going to be a whole lot of one arguments in the workplace when you have a coworker that says, you know, the Bible says this. Um, that's why I don't believe in it. And you're like, well, no, actually, if you would uh, read this book and let me give you the brief uh, cliff note summary. And then all of a sudden they're having an encounter right there in the office um, because of your like brilliant exposition of what that really means. I mean, that is pretty unlikely. I, 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 I gather that. You're actually more likely to just, you know, say like, oh, I realize that that's a real tough question. You mind if I pray for you? Or, or do you want to come maybe have a glass of wine and some food and process that? And then maybe don't sit there and judge them and convince them, but just let them talk and talk and talk. And you just continue to love and love and love. And then, and then they're going to eventually, when you don't want to force an answer upon them, they're going to do this. Well, what do you think? <laughs> and then what I like to do is just toy with them. Like, almost like you don't want to tell them. Like, like, that you perfectly are fine, like, thinking about this topic. But, like, let them draw it out of you. Because what Christians have done is that we've taken on this posture where they think that we want to bang them over the head with it. That's where the culture is at. Most of the culture is at right now. You, it, it's amazing to watch things happen when they, when they realize you're not like what they have experienced. Or not like what they thought they would experience. Um, and Jesus went around continually surprising people at his posture of how he treated the non-Jew, the non-religious elite, constantly. And I just want to throw that seed out there. Um, I, I also want to share a little story. I hope this makes sense. I've got this predicament. I feel like every kind of like current event or story that I find is like potentially politically charged. <laughs> and, and that's because we live in a world that's um, politically charged. Did you guys notice that? So this is not, again, every week I have to say some kind of caveat, but um, I like watching comedians and their commentary on culture, and Bill Maurer is one of the commentaries that I like, and uh, not because I agree with, with, with everything, uh, but because I like his perspective, and I like how he, he seems to like to, to just weigh up different tensions. So Bill Maurer, if you haven't heard of him, I mean, he's just a kind of a political com comedic comic pundit. I don't know what, where he would stand. He used to be on HBO for a long time um, with his show. But he gives this example, and, and he, he's, he starts, I think I have a picture of um, two major influencers these days. Um, that person, <laughs> sorry, I mean, I was in a hurry getting pictures. The person on the right is uh, Kylie Jenner. Um, I believe we share a city with her. And she has something like um, 279 million followers on Instagram. Uh, and I think she runs a billion-dollar business. Isn't it her, or is it her sister? Like billion-dollar business? Okay. Then the, the person on the left is um, uh, related to me. She's a Norwegian named Greta Thunberg. She's uh, been quite popular in memes and things of that nature. But ultimately, she's kind of the, the Gen Zer representative of the climate activ activist kind of movement, right? And, and again, I'm not doing this to get into any sort of, of, of politics on the, the climate. Um, but Bill Maurer brings up the fact that um, this generation, he goes... 
Here's, actually, this is what he says. You young people claim to be concerned about the environment, and you use words. And he's talking about, like, all young people. So, and he's talking about basically, like, people under 40. That's a few people in here. So not everybody, a few people in here under 40. He goes, you young people claim to be concerned about the environment, and you, you use buzzwords like sustainability and carbon neutrality, and, and you like to shame people for not bringing their cloth bags to Trader Joe's. And, uh, and, then, and then you go out and, and you, you worship her by about three times more than, than, than this person. So I, I guess like Greta Thunberg, she like just went to, to this, big, this big conference in Scotland. And I guess she doesn't uh, fly. So she, she doesn't fly. She takes a boat. And he jokes about how, meanwhile, she won't fly, fly commercial. It's only private jets. And then meanwhile... These, these influencers, he starts giving other examples. You, you influencers, you claim to have all this uh, love for the environment, and then, and then you, you give out 40 cars when you get 40 million followers, or you go and have this big food feast, and, and then he just talks about the hypocrisy of, of like the green footprint and whatever else. And he's not really talking about the agenda of the environment, though he is. He's talking about the hypocrisy that you cannot live this lifestyle and get the, these results. And ultimately, what he's, he's getting at, and I think we're going to get this more and more and more with every issue that comes up. I do believe that the climate issue is a big issue. I, I also know that, that, that like what is being brought up of what to focus on in the environment and the climate, sometimes there's a frustration in what is the right thing to focus on, and then it, all this gets wrapped up into this political whirlwind, and we don't even know where to start and what to agree with, and we're just all offended. But the reality is, is that it is really hard to have all the stuff and the consumerism and the, the closets full of a thousand shoes and the private jets, and it's also hard to go after zero emissions footprint or whatever else it is. The Christian life is similar. We say we want certain elements. We, we say we want the way of Jesus and everything at all costs. And then we live in a society where we're like, but what of the culture is okay to say yes to? And our posture is, I want to say yes, and I want to live all the things that are attractive anyway. I want as many of them as possible, and I, but I also want this. And I think the problem with our posture is, is that we, we end up having this split personality, and, and there's a very subtle kind of, of, of tension where you can't actually have both. And, and I wonder, when we're really talking about pursuing the way of Jesus, can we, can, we put our, can we put our feet into some waters that maybe we're like, can I reevaluate how I do my entire life? How I, how I set the schedule of my entire life, how I prioritize my entire life. Uh, you know, even like, <laughs> I really actually didn't plan to go into like the, the, the green thing on the, the phone or the, on the example. But we realized like our smartphones um, and, and just what they require are an incredible weight on, on energy, right? That's not sustainable. They did a little, they did a little research and <laughs> there's... There's this stat now going around that 43% of people say that it would take $5 million for them to give up their smartphone. Five million. Four million? No. Five? Probably. I could probably hand you this thing. Yeah. 10% of people said I'd give up a finger for my smartphone. A finger. 
a digit, part of your body for your phone. <laughs> um, at the same time, I'm observing that there are also, there's also a movement of people that are looking to give up certain devices because they're realizing that we're addicted to them. There's the addiction, and then there's the effect of the addiction on the environment and things around you. There's all these tensions. And you know what? As soon as you start swirling this, you know what ends up coming to the surface? Anxiety, right? <laughs> I can feel it. I'm getting anxious right now just talking about it. And some of so are you, you know? It's an, and it's okay. Why? Man, we have so much awareness and information that's pulling on us. And we're aware of all of these elements of life that, that are actually like, you know, I, I'm realizing, like, I, I actually have that thought. I'm like, man, I forgot my, my cloth bags at Traders. I'm not participating. That's, or I get real excited because I remembered my bags today. Meanwhile, I brought 14 pounds of meat that, that required these cows to fart all into the atmosphere. And <laughs> no one's talking about the cow farts. And, uh, and, and ultimately, I can get into this cycle of like, oh, God, what, to what degree? Are we all supposed to go back to the garden and eat vegetables? And, and I'm like, stop stressing out. This isn't actually about the decisions we make about saving the earth, first and foremost. Because we can do all of that back and forth. When ultimately, what our soul craves is to follow the way of Jesus and let his rest minister to your soul. And you start taking steps with him because he promised he'd never leave you and he'd walk with you. And as you walk with him, you start, you start allowing his voice to guide you. And you start allowing his voice through the scriptures to just pulse through you. And you fill yourself on these things. And, and when you start saying, like, I just want my life to be so saturated in the person of Jesus, in the way of life of following him, you will start to see the ways that it is possible to start to make ground without first aiming at all these other things. Because here's what we end up doing. We just, like, aim like a rabbit fire like all over the place we have no idea no strategy the strategy is following jesus <laughs> the strategy is formation unto him that is so simple and so freeing and we will never experience any sense of true freedom true purpose and true longevity without him and so i say all of that just to to settle our spirits and just to say that like are you willing to say yes to the way of jesus if that means saying no to some other mode that's attractive in some way? I think the answer actually for most of us is more of a yes than a no. I actually do. It's just that we, we struggle with what does that look like? And what that question is, is what does the way of Jesus actually look like? Because if we're real honest as Christians, we still lose sight of what it looks like to be a Christian in 2021 all the time. We lose sight of it constantly, constantly. And the scripture is the key to being the daily voice of God that I fill myself with when I lose connection. And I want to encourage each of us, reinvite that voice into your life. Reinvite it in. I, I know for a fact many of us, like there are so many things that take the noise and the space away from that voice. And, and, and here's, here's the, I, I just spent way too much time on dealing with that, but here's what I want to say about dealing with doubt and authority. Um, there's a couple books. These are the pages of a couple books. I just want to recommend some reading for you. Um, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by Richard Bauckham is one of the best books if you ever want to just refresh yourself on, on like an absolute invigorating journey through how the Gospels will blow your mind, how real and how reliable and how trustworthy they are. Read that book.
It will blow your mind. And it will strengthen your spirit. Uh, Tim Keller, I'm on a big Tim Keller kick for the last number of months, so sorry for all the quotes, but, but I feel like he's got one of the best frameworks across the board of someone who's preached into to, to secular culture for decades. And his, his book on um, the, the reason for God and I think the meaning of God, there's two different ones that are really good, are, are uh, really helpful. So what I want to, to, to share really quickly is what, what the purpose of miracles are. Um, last week we talked about how healing reveals God's nature. Any healing is an invitation to what God is like and what his nature is. And when we, when we share these testimonies this morning, it's, it's not just to say, like, it's actually not just for the purpose of, hey, do you want to see some magic tricks in the Christian club and see how cool they are? Uh, and, we, and, we, and Jesus never did a miracle to just show off and to show some kind of, like, impressive things just so that somebody would believe. He did the miracles to show what his father was like, to the nature of God to be exposed. And he would never respond when someone would would put him on the spot in order to just show off when there was an ounce of resistance, like prove to me this, because he always wanted to respond to someone that's eager to meet the father. And so we talked about how healing reveals his nature, but encountering the miracle of the resurrected Christ did not just lead them to an intellectual faith. It leads them to worship. That, that great commission, he tells them to go to Galilee, back to his homeland. And he says, all authority has been given to me. Now go and make disciples. But when he sees them, what was the response? Can we pull that scripture back up? That scripture says, and when they saw him, they worshipped. But some doubted. The resurrected Jesus had raised from the dead. They'd gone back to Galilee. All this stuff was happening. All this buzz was happening around Jesus. And still, some of the 11 that were going to transform the world had doubts. If it's okay for them to have doubts in that moment, when they've got the resurrected person of Jesus Christ showing them wounds and looking at them eye to eye, and they can feel his breath, they can smell his lack of deodorant, they can literally do anything they need to confront their doubts. And the gospel isn't afraid to tell you that his closest followers still doubt it. Really quick, there's not a historical document that's trying to prove historicity. There's not a single false account that's trying to twist history that would ever give an account like that, ever. They would never say that some doubted in the Messiah unless it was actually true. Everything you'll read about the literature of Scripture all goes back to validating again and again and again, if these things were falsified, they wouldn't have been written this way. They doubted. And God is not afraid of their doubt. It's like he invites it. In the midst of those that were worshiping him with awe and wonder, there's still doubt. And with his breath, he just gives them a final but ongoing invitation. In the midst of your worship, in the midst of your doubt, go. Make disciples. Baptize them. Teach them everything I taught you. And I'm with you. Always. I cannot get enough of this phrase, of this moment. I keep coming back to it every few months. It just, it just centers my entire life. 
if there's, if there's one thing you can go back to, the voice of Jesus saying to you, just read this passage and let it be a, a direct letter to your soul. Let us speak. Let the promises restore you. Remember that Jesus didn't perform these miracles as magic tricks. He performed them to heal the sick, feed the hungry, and raise the dead. Why? Because we modern people think of miracles as the suspension of the natural order. But Jesus meant them to be the restoration of the natural order. Everything he was doing was restoring everything that had been broken. Healing the entire creation. The scripture and healing, the word and spirit, they're one and the same because ultimately the entire heart of God is to restore everything that's been broken and to heal the entire thing. The person of Jesus comes and shows that when he talks about authority, he's talking about that. His miracles aren't just to impress and convert, but to heal and restore. The miracles of Jesus are not just a challenge to our minds, but a promise to our hearts. That the world we all want is actually coming. Our verse as a church, our, our core verse, is all of creation eagerly waits for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. And I think that the, the ethos of that is the reality that we actually believe that what Jesus has begun is this ultimate project that the world is craving. And sometimes I, I, I feel like the world wants it more than we do in the church because we forget what we're a part of. We forget where he's building and how he's building. And then there's just that moment where you, we're just a simple back is healed, a finger or whatever it is. And you're like, this is part of him reminding us with a little bit of a window of the created orders being restored. His heart is healing. And he's not going out there to do magic tricks so everybody can come and see the show. He wants you to encounter what he's like so that he can build through you and with you. And so here's, here's the thing with the cultural objections. I just want to run through a couple of these, and we're going to be done. I, like I mentioned, there's scientific objections to the Bible. There's historical objections to the Bible. But then the cultural ones are the ones that I think are the most prevalent right now that we are not used to talking about and talking with people about. And the cultural objections look something like this. People actually believe that they are their desires. So we go back to like the Kylie and Greta comparison. You, you've got a generation that, that, that has desires to do this, and they have desires to have this. But what we're really learning, and everybody knows this, is you can't be your desires because your desires will always contradict. Your identity is not in your what you desire. If my identity is with my desires, they will always let me down because my desires are not consistent. My desires change constantly, and my desires work against each other. It's a real big issue because it, this will set people free. Do you know how many people are, are, are literally in bondage and are, are reeking in the realms of depression and anxiety and fear because they've got these conflicting desires working within them constantly? People are going to therapy endlessly for, for, for getting some kind of breakthrough. And I've got these desires in these, these ways and, and they take on an identity with these desires. And then it's impossible to break free of them. When you've got conflicting desires... You're, you're never going to get peace when you bring them both to the table and say, I am both of these things, or all of these things. The, the, way of, the way of the cross is allowing your parent, your father, who loves you, to speak over you, this is who you are. And it's okay if you've got conflicting desires. 
That's not who you are. That sometimes is the most freeing thing that you could ever hear is all these things warring inside of you. That's, that's not who you are. That's part of the good news. And we have, to, we have to be present with that reality. We have to start with our own selves. But we also have to be present with what does that look like to love people that are wrestling with these realities. And so, some people are so fixated on the outdated elements of the scripture that, that they don't know how to, to navigate things. They, they see things like how the Bible treats women and they don't understand the cultural context and the history of it. Um, one example that I, that I appreciated from Keller, he talked about in Mark 14. All right, I'm not going to turn there, but he, he said, just think about people from the UK now versus like the Anglo-Saxons a thousand years ago. And he goes, modern people now would read uh, Mark 14, 62, where Jesus claims to be the son of man who will come with angels at the end of time to judge the whole world according to his righteousness. And modern people will be kind of like overwhelmed at that and they'll be like, what the, what, that's so judgmental and elusive and, and what do we, but, 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 but then think about people a thousand years ago. They're totally fine with that. They're like, oh yeah, that's that doomsday stuff. Sounds totally fine. We're totally on track with that. A few verses later in chapter 14, verse 71, it reads, uh, the leading apostle, Peter, denies his master three times and even curses him. But he's forgiven, and he's restored to leadership and becomes pope. That's the story of Peter. That's just a few verses later. Well, think about the, the Anglo-Saxon a thousand years ago. Deeply offended that a master could, could deny, oh, sorry, that, that, the, that the pupil could deny the master three times and curse him. Because the conviction is that person should die. Like, now. Pope? No context. You know what? I don't believe the Bible. This is ridiculous. So a thousand years ago, the cultural, the cultural climate would literally give you some kind of, 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 of reason to look at the Scripture and go, no, that, that just can't be the case. But today, the people read about the, 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 anyone in society reads about the forgiveness and the restoration of Peter, and they're like, oh, that Jesus was really, really an amazing guy, amazing prophet. That's the cultural commentary. You're not going to share that with your friend at work about Jesus. He actually, he forgave his disciples and, and then restored them to leadership. That's not going to be your segue into having a deep, honest conversation. They're just going to be like, oh, that's cool, man. Yeah, Jesus sounds like a pretty cool bro. Like that, no one's going to care. Why? Because this isn't, the, this isn't the dynamics. We have a completely different cultural narrative today as the ancient people did. But if you look at your grandparents' cultural norms and what they believed just, you know, a couple generations ago, it's really easy to look at them and go, ah, oh, how silly some of their thoughts and their convictions were. And in many ways, depending on what part of the world and nation you are, it was like, it wasn't just silly, it was downright horrible. And you'd be right. The problem is, is that that cycle continues, and you realize that this is going to be us in just a generation or two. And they're going to look back at us, and they're going to see all the holes, all the issues, all the real realities and the limitations that our cultural narratives had. Culture always, history always repeats the reality that people at their heart are fools with limitations. And when they're wrestling with their desires, their desires are never going to agree, and they're constantly wrestling with what an authority looks like. And the beautiful thing about the scripture is if, if you read the writings that are 2,000 years old, 
or 5,000 years old, and you read those that were following Jesus 1,900 years ago, whether that was Augustine or, or, or the first believers after Christ, you could read what they've written, and you can go back in history and read what they've written and go, this is a brother or a sister that followed Jesus just like I did. They had all kinds of cultural issues that are different than the cultural issues I had today. Most of them get to live without an awareness of the endless need in society, or they know that they can only do limited things. We have the temptation because of our endless freedom and choice that we can always do a little bit of something. We can always be aware of what's happening all over the world, and we can be completely maxed out and oppressed by just the idea that I'm not helping and doing more. But if you would just allow Jesus to give you his way, his yoke that is not a burden, that's always light, that might be convicting, that might offend parts of your heart, but ultimately when you meet him, he's going to show you something about what a different kind of authority looks like, a different kind of parental voice, a different kind of guidance. So the re- reality is we need, we need to, to look at our grandparents with a little bit of a different perspective, realizing that we're going to look at the same way in the future. And it's tragic to throw away the Bible over a belief that will soon look pretty weak or even wrong to the next generation. So even just in your own life, your own doubts, your own dynamics with even wrestling with what is in Scripture, I invite you, I invite you, take a fresh look. And don't stumble over the external things until you have settled on the anchor things. Do you realize that like the creeds of the historic church have not changed in thousands of years? There's been absolute agreement that Jesus Christ is the Son of God that rose from the dead on account of you and account of me. And that there's a good God that pursues you and that wants to restore all of creation in partnership with you. That hasn't changed in 2,000 years, and we talk about disunity. That's super good news. And we sit here in the church, and we, we argue about all the other external things that can be a big deal, but when we're not anchored on the main things, when we're not anchored on those things that have sustained the body of Jesus for thousands of years, when we're not anchored on those things, it's really hard for those legitimate arguments, those legitimate discussions to have any weight that's going to bear any fruit in the long term. Slaves, obey your masters, Paul said. Well, that's super offensive. And it should be offensive because our cultural context is, is, is what slavery looked like in our nation, which was horrific. If you just take a couple minutes and look at the, the context of what it looked like in Roman times, uh, slaves and free laborers were, were almost the exact same. They were, almost never, they were almost never slaves their entire life, and they even earned wages, just to give you a tidbit of what it looked like. They were not allowed to be beaten. They were not owned as property. There were all these other elements. And so even in our righteousness to say, like, yes, if Paul actually said that the slavery that we've experienced in our nation was, was obey your masters, which, by the way, they used that. The, the slave owners used that in our nation to justify a lot of what they did, and they would hand out what they call slave Bibles, and they'd put the stuff in that they liked and take out the stuff they didn't like. And we had a, and, and are still recovering from legitimate problems. But if you go, yeah, this doesn't resonate in my spirit, We've learned to do, most of us have realized verses like that are not getting at the heart of what Paul and what the gospel is talking about. 
But that's just one in many other examples that make the world offended, but we haven't spent the time maybe to go deeper. And when you go deeper, what you're going to find is God himself and what he's really like. I want to encourage us that the God that you've encountered is the God of the scriptures. And he's given you a love letter to sustain you in the wilderness. And I want to close with just this one thing. The worship team can come up and, and we'll close. But I, I just want to talk about this one uh, example and just put this in your mind and you can even close your eyes as you kind of um, receive this example. I really feel like this concept of, of, of Scripture and authority, when we delve into this whole thing, and we're going to delve into to other aspects of healing, the why, the how, the what, and all these things in future weeks. But I feel like we have to continually lay a foundation for how Scripture sustains us. And I want to encourage you to allow it to speak into your life and allow it to challenge you. But I want you to view it as, as a love letter. Uh, John Wimber gave this example where there was, there was a soldier in Vietnam who had a, a child out of wedlock with a Vietnamese woman, which happened a lot in Vietnam. But he ended up getting separated because of the, of the intensity of, uh, of the war. And, and the, the, the woman passed away. And so he completely lost contact with, with his daughter. Years later, he's looking at a picture in National Geographic or a national magazine. I don't know if it was National Geographic. And he sees her. She looks just like him. And he pursues contact. And, and, and he's, he's literally able to reconnect with her. And after two years of diplomatic exchange, they're able to meet up. And she ends up moving, and they have a long-term relationship. But they started with letters. And, and he, he's writing these letters. Just imagine the letters that are coming from this father to this daughter. And it's all she has of her parents. And there's the, the chaos of her life, of a war-torn country. She's been completely orphaned. And there's this spiritual attachment when you go through any sense of, of, of losing parents and having no access to them and wondering who you are, where do I come from, with all these dynamics, all these questions. Just think about what went through her mind. And all of a sudden, these letters start coming. She's learning about her father, where he's come from, what he's done what he's learned, what he's struggled with, what his pains and victories and losses have been, even the dynamics of explaining where he lives, the jobs he's had, what he looks like, all these elements. She probably memorized, just think about it, she probably memorized every last thing she possibly could from the letters. And in a small way, she would have come to know him without ever even speaking to him directly. But those letters... They, they pale in comparison to meeting him personally, face to face. And from the beginning of the family of Israel with Moses on Mount Sinai down to the person of Jesus, we have a God that comes and says, I want to meet with you face to face. Here's my love letter to you that will guide you, that will give you glimpses into my heart of who I am. But ultimately, I want to know you. I want to invite us today to, to allow the, the person of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to begin a fresh 
way of life through the written words of God to transform us, anchor us, sustain us, love us like never before. And I want us to take all of our history, all of our junk, all of the stuff that we see out in culture, all the ways that Christians have ruined different dynamics, and I just want us to bring it all to the surface, give it all to him, and allow him to speak afresh. I want to, enjoy, I want to just invite you to stand. And I want you to close your eyes, and I just want to pray. As we pray, I just want us to analyze just in our own hearts, what are some of the attitudes in my own heart that I'm carrying to this conversation and to this reality? We can be all over the map. Some of us might actually have offense at God, whether that has anything to do with the Bible and Scripture or not. Some of us has offense at Christians. Some of us are just carrying heaviness and baggage of ourselves. The Lord is not afraid of your baggage. He's not afraid of your doubts. He's not afraid of your history. He's after you. He wants you. He loves you, and he's for you. And he's not afraid to offend our hearts, offend our minds, to reveal his mind and to reveal his heart. And so, Holy Spirit, we just ask right now a fresh work of the Word and Spirit in our lives, a fresh conviction of the goodness of your love letter to us in the Scriptures, a fresh motivation to take the really terrible examples that we see all throughout the world, all throughout culture, all throughout the church, all throughout our road signs, all throughout the places in our society that do not accurately represent who you are, what your Word says, the person of Jesus, and the power and the love of your Spirit. All these places, all these things, we bring them to the surface, and we say all these tensions, all these desires of our hearts, all these convictions that we carry, all the things that we want, we just bring it before you and say that this is impossible possible for us to live a perfect life. We allow the beauty of the gospel to come and say, stop trying to achieve what you can only receive from me in my goodness, my love, and my pursuit of you. That Jesus covers everything, and he wants you to start today. Just take one step forward and let him walk with you. One step forward, let him walk with you. Let him cover you. Let him speak truth to you that maybe you weren't willing to receive. Can you trust him? Yes. He's much more patient and kind than you give him credit for. His strategy at repenting, which just means to change the direction of where you're going, his strategy of repentance is kindness. The scripture says that his kindness leads you to repentance. We change repentance into this miserable feeling sorry for sin, and that's only the beginning part. The conviction isn't about feeling miserable. He doesn't care if you feel miserable or not. He just wants you restored. He just wants you whole. He just wants you to be in love with him and to experience in him. And many of the church just want you to feel miserable, and somehow that is doing repentance. And when you come into an encounter with the holiness of God, it may convict you, but it's to draw you higher, and it's to release everything that he carries onto you. A fresh start today, Holy Spirit. We just pray, and we, and we literally take a step forward together as a family and say, speak to us afresh in your word. Let that foundation lay the concrete reality that we need in order to build the kind of family that this world is eagerly 
desiring and waiting for to see. We take every desire that seems to be in conflict, we give it to you. And as our father, as our parent, as the one that pursues us, that loves us and gave everything for us, we say again that we can trust you, that we love you, and that we receive you afresh. We honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.